you can't afford to lose capital. It happens. It's happened to me. But you really have to protect your capital. Best ever listeners, before we jump into today's episode, for all my fix and flippers out there, are your financing costs eating away at your bottom line? And are you looking for a way to increase your overall profits by lowering your loan payments to the bank or maybe your private lender? Well, our best ever sponsor, Patch of Land, you know Patch of Land, they've been on the show, representatives of their company have been on the show many times, they've been a sponsor of this show many, many times, they're back for more because they love you and they love working with the best ever listeners and they've got an interesting point of view on interest rates and that is that it's... The interest rates that we are quoted shouldn't necessarily be taken at face value because perhaps a higher interest rate could actually deliver a lower cost to your fix and flip loan. And they have a white paper on how that is possible and how that can be applied to your fix and flip business to help your bottom line get more profitable and to help you choose the best a lender for your financing needs. So go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless and they've got a white paper for you and it will walk you through the way to evaluate interest rates in terms in general on your loan so that you truly are getting the best interest rate because there are some tricky things some lenders try to do to um, glaze over the fact that their lower interest rate, quote unquote, is actually higher based on some technical things that they put into it. So go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless and get that white paper so that you can save money on your fix and flip projects. Patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today, Bobby Montaigne. How you doing, Bobby? I'm well, thank you. How are you? And thanks for having me. I'm well too. And you're welcome, my friend. And I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. Holy cow, I was looking over your bio before and you've got some experience, three decades of experience, in fact, in commercial and residential property development, finance, and sales. And in fact, between 2010 and 2015, he was the principal owner of WSD Capital, which is a real estate development firm that renovated and resold 185 classic row homes that generated, get this, $150 million in revenue. He is based in Fairfax, Virginia. His company now, Walnut Street Finance. There's a link to that in the show notes page. So that being said, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure thing. Love to. And again, thanks. The short story is I got out of school in the late 80s. I worked for other developers and finance companies for 10 years. I started my own company, Walnut Street Development, in the late 90s and then built essentially infill residential properties in and around Washington, D.C. and what we refer to as the Beltway. And by infill, I mean typically very good locations where we were tearing something down or just buying a small infill site and building a building. We built high-end condos. We built single-family detached, and we were essentially the builder and the developer. We would buy the land, zone the land, build the building, sell the buildings. 
In 2015, after the recession and the Dodd-Frank law, I noticed that capital was no longer available for the typical infill developer, just because banks used to be able to do essentially A to Z. After the recession, the whole front of the alphabet got taken away from them. And capital was no longer available to the typical infill developer. So if I started my company in 2012 or beyond, I probably could have never found capital to build the projects. So I decided to pivot and go from the builder developer to a lender in the space where traditional banks weren't lending. I love the space. I understand the space. I understand real estate and the thought process. And we've been at it now for a year and a half. We've originated about $15 million in 40 different deals in and around Washington. Mm -hmm. Is that where you're focused to lend is Washington? Washington, D.C., Northern Virginia, and pieces of Maryland that again touch the Beltway, Southern Maryland. And the plan is to do it in that market, this region, for the next year or two, and then begin to think about other markets. Mm -hmm. But we want to perfect our model, perfect our underwriting, and just really better understand this private lending space before we move into markets that we're not familiar with. There are opportunities that I see all the time, but my focus right now is multifamily investing. However, I might think, man, storage units, which I do, make a lot of sense. And so do mobile home parks. I believe both those things. However, I'm not going to pivot because I'm focused on what I'm doing. Now, you said you saw an opportunity because the capital wasn't available for infill developers in 2015. And now you want to be the solution to that. But what were the other reasons why you switched because it's one thing to see an opportunity, it's another to then switch what you're currently doing and making money on and do something else. That's such a good question. As with every pivot in a business, especially if you're having success, pivoting is a big deal. But we started buying dilapidated row houses in Washington, D.C. in 2010. And we could buy dilapidated row houses in D.C. in 2010 for a great number. We would do a complete gut renovation and sell the property and have a cash-on-cash cash return somewhere in the high 20s. It was a good business. Mm -hmm. That high 20 cash-on-cash cash return continued through 2014. I was flabbergasted at how long it lasted. Typically, when you have those sorts of returns, others discover the space, money comes flooding into it, competition increases. Others didn't discover the space and get after it in an organized fashion or compete with us in an organized fashion until late 14, early 15. Before late 14, early 15, depending on the market, we had a very simple formula. Essentially, we would buy the dilapidated row house for $10. I'm just using that as a, yep. as a ratio point. We'd buy for $10, we'd fix for $5, and we'd sell for $20. If we were in Georgetown, that ratio would be buy dilapidated for a million dollars, renovate for 500000 sell for $2 million. If we were in Petworth, we'd buy for 300000 fix for 150000 sell for 600000 So that mm -hmm. buy for 10 fix for 5 sell for 20 formula stuck mm -hmm. in many neighborhoods, and we did it as efficiently as we could for four years, 180-some-odd units. 
In late 14, early 15, as others discovered the space, the Bifur 10 moved to Bifur 12. Mm-hmm. The fix stayed at five and the sale stayed at 20. So the margins got squeezed because there are more players bidding up the price of dilapidated row houses. And it got very competitive. And the simple story was in a neighborhood called Petworth. We had done 30 some odd row houses on a particular street in Petworth, Third Street. We'd done, I don't know, five or six deals. I mean, I knew Third Street really, really well. I knew dogs' names. <laughs> a house comes available on Third Street. I hear about it at one o'clock. I say, bid 350. We'll close as soon as they want to. And I get a call later that afternoon. The number's 375. I said, okay, 375 it is. Ready to close. Got a call after dinner. The number's 400. <laughs> it's the first time. Petworth dilapidated, traded for something with a four in front of it. And that's when it hit me. I was like, holy cow, the others have discovered the space. We got to think about a pivot. Mm -hmm. And that is what led to the original thought of the pivot. In fact, the moon's always line up. I called the guy who won the house on Third Street for 400. Great guy, young guy, just getting into the space quit his nine to five, was going to get in this business big time, educated, but he didn't have any capital. So I called him, introduced myself. He said, yes, I know who you are. I know your company and like your product. I said, well, listen, congratulations on the buy. When do you have to close? He said, 30 days. I said, what are you going to do for capital? He said, I don't know, but I got about 25 days to figure it out. <laughs> Long story short, I lent him 300 of the 400 oh, wow. to buy it. And I lent him all the construction improvements and it turned into a friend of mine. I did two or three deals with him off of a yellow pad. I hadn't even considered really getting into this lending space. And after I did a couple of deals with him, I began to think this really makes sense because there's so many folks out there that are very, very good builders. And they're also good deal bird dogs, just like this guy on Third Street. But what they don't have is access to capital. Mm-hmm. And they don't necessarily understand money as well as they should. And I can help in both of those categories. So that was the beginning of the thought process, and it went from there. If you were talking to someone who lives across the country from you, so there's no competition from them, and they said, can you just tell me what are the benefits from owning a company that does these loans, hard money lending, what would your replies be from a monetary standpoint? Oh, well, we mitigate our risk here and then we make our money here. What would you say? I would not get into hard money lending or private lending or the space I'm in if I did not understand the product as well as I do. My company really understands construction. We know what a two by four costs. We know how to underwrite. We know how long the stuff should take, know all about permits and plans and marketing. And so we're so comfortable in that space that I feel like I can take on more risk than most of our competitors in this space who are typically, not across the board, but typically very smart money guys, but they don't know what a two by four costs. So to answer your question, with that background of knowing the real estate, the upside in this space is the security of the investment. We're lending 75 to 80% loan to value in a first lien position on a hard asset, a row house, a single family detached, a condo, in and around Washington, D.C., the capital of the United States, where real estate values are pretty strong. 
So if things go south, we have real collateral backing our investment. In addition to that, and again, with the caveat that we understand the space and the asset, in addition to that, lending only up to 75% of the loan to value, we vet fully, not just the real estate, but the borrower also. Not from the standpoint of does a big fat balance sheet, because they never do, but from the standpoint of are they capable of doing what they say they're going to do? And then in the completely subjective category, do they have integrity? Are they going to do what they say they're going to do? You get to know the borrower. And then at some point, you put your hand on your heart and you go, I believe he's the payer. I'm going to do the deal. So if somebody on the other side of the country is getting into this space, I would recommend really knowing the product. And I would recommend underwriting not only the hard asset, but also the borrower. As far as how you make money on it, you initially talked about the security of it with the 75% loan to value. So you've got some leeway there, and then you also have a hard asset. What type of upside is there for you? Well, what we do is uh, have a fair amount of my own money in this, but our cost of capital, we pay our investors somewhere in the neighborhood of 8 to 9%. We pay our investors a monthly coupon, so they get a check every month. And then we lend that money to our borrowers at somewhere between 10 and 12% annually, and somewhere between two and four points. So total cost is somewhere between 12 and 15%. So we receive 12 to 15% for the money that we put out. We pay 8% for that money, and we keep the delta. So let's say the delta is 5%. If you can build a company where you're doing $10 million in loans per year, you can count on keeping 5% of that or 500,000 mm bucks. -hmm. The real game is to scale the company to somewhere in the $40 million of origination per year. And we're on our way to that. We should be there in early 2019. And then when you apply the 5% delta or the five delta, as I call it, on 40 million, it's a $2 million upside. You use that $2 million to first pay your people. And you don't need a lot of people in this space. You need a handful of really smart people. And the rest goes to retained earnings. That's a good business. Mm -hmm. With the investors, you've got monthly distributions you're doing, 8 to 9%. When you are low on projects, are you still having to pay? eight to nine percent to investors on projects that you're not lending their money out to earn that higher percent so you have a delta it's a great question joe the uh typically in the hard money or private lending space when the money is idle not in play in a deal investors aren't getting paid so the switch is shut off when a new deal arrives the switch gets put back on i don't do that if you invest in my company at eight or nine percent switch goes on and it doesn't go off until you redeem. And I'm able to do that because we have a very strong pipeline. And the reason we have a very strong pipeline is because we've invested very heavily in inbound marketing and our phone rings with viable deals. So I don't have the off switch for my capital. So the next question or the obvious question is, well, what happens when you have a whole bunch of vital capital, you got money just going out and none coming in? Well, we protect ourselves from that in that we can return capital. 
if we have idle money and I don't see a home for it for the next three or four months, we're going to return the capital. But okay. honestly, where we are in the business and the growth mode, shame on us if we don't have a home for capital. You said you invest heavily in inbound marketing. What are you investing in? Well, we invest heavily in inbound marketing and outbound marketing. On the inbound side, we work with HubSpot. We put out content blogs two and three and four a week, primarily aimed at potential borrowers. On the outbound marketing side, we have outreach meetings to talk about hunting for a deal. What are you looking for? What neighborhoods are promising? Why would you pick that neighborhood over another neighborhood? How does the math work? We'll buy for 10, fix for five, sell for 20. So we're educating. We're content marketing, as the term is, but we're educators. We're constantly trying to help, not dissimilar to what you do, trying to help those worthy borrowers who are very good builders who get up early and get after it. We're trying to help those folks build a business. And we can do that by providing capital. And we can do that by providing help. For example, we did a loan with a guy in a great location, again, in Washington, D.C., in a neighborhood called Eckington. Uh, Got renovation of a row house. Permit should have taken three to four weeks. After three to four weeks, no permit. We give him a call and say, hey, when are you starting? He goes, I can't get my permit. We said, well, what's going on? He explained it to us. We provided a resource that he then engaged, hired, and it broke his permit free and off to the races he went. So we try to help not only with providing capital, but also a bit of coaching. This is a better way to go than the other way. If folks want to ask, if they don't want to ask, that's fine too. Based on your experience in the industry as a developer and now on the lending side, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? So not my best advice. I borrowed it from Warren Buffett. (laughs) It's preserve capital. That is the first and probably only real rule. You can't afford to lose capital. It happens. It's happened to me. But you really have to protect your capital. So that's my advice. As Warren Buffett says, rule number one, protect capital. Rule number two, see rule number one. Yep. On the part where you have lost money on a deal, can you tell us a story about that deal? I can, actually. It wasn't on the lending side. Like I said earlier, we've only been on the lending business for about 15 months now. We haven't had any deals get sideways on us. We will eventually, and we know how to deal with it when it does happen. But in 2000 to 2005, 2006 years, I built high-end condos in and around Washington. Very big deals built a building next to the vice president's mansion in Washington, D.C., off of Wisconsin and Mass Ave, a 420-unit deal in Arlington that had a pool on the 10th floor that looked down the the mall. I mean, really high-end condo stuff. And from 2000 to 2005, you couldn't build them fast enough. Sold off the paper before we even had the frame-up of the building. In 2006... We had three buildings, mostly completely sold out. Between the three, there were 15 units, all in the million-plus range, that had not sold. So we were kind of scratching our head in late five, early six, like, why haven't these sold? The building's done. 
people have moved into it. It's a great product, but they weren't selling. At the same time, I was getting ready to start a building on Mass Ave in Washington, a 10-story apartment building where we had bought the land, zoned the land, gone through a historic review, and getting ready to build the building. So I went to New York and I got a construction loan, a big construction loan, to build this 10-story building in early 2006. And it was so easy to convince the bank in New York that this was a viable project and that they should lend literally tens of millions of dollars to get it built. And I left New York on a train on Thursday night and I started thinking to myself, that was way too easy. I mean, there should have been way more due diligence on the bank side, way more questions like how fast do they sell? How many days on market? Were the price points? Why did you decide to do this many one bedrooms and this many two bedrooms? None of those questions. So I'm sitting on the train, I'm coming back to Washington from New York, and it occurred to me, that was really easy money for this 10-story building on Mass Ave. And we have 15 units that we can't sell in these completed buildings. So I started thinking, can't sell the last units, easy money, we're at the top of the market. We need to get out right now. So I went and I talked to my equity investor at the time, an older gentleman who's seen it, been there and done that. Kind of talked through what I just said, but in a little more detail. And he agreed, it's top of the market, time to get out. So we sold everything. We sold those last 15 units, five of them at a loss. We sold that site on Mass Ave, the 10-story multi-family condo building site on Mass Ave at a slight loss. And we got on the sidelines in 2006 and stayed there until 2009. And it was, although I lost money and the business obviously didn't grow because we weren't building anything, it was the smartest thing I ever did. Wow. I've heard stories where people got out, but I haven't heard as detailed of a story like you just told us. Thank you for sharing that. Are you seeing anything like that now? No, I am not. And I really like the way we're growing now. At least I can speak towards through the greater Washington metropolitan marketplace. Mm -hmm. We're increasing in values, but at a steady, reasonable pace. There's no crazy spikes. Construction costs are remaining relatively steady, eking up a little bit, but no spikes. I mean, I remember in the 2004 and five, we were selling a 420 unit building in Arlington. We would have a conference call every morning with my equity partners and a lead bank to talk about pricing because we would increase prices almost every day and we'd still sell it. It was just crazy town. Hmm. And we, in building buildings, we would budget X amount for steel. And then all of a sudden steel costs two X. And you're like, why? And it's like, well, that's what it costs, the demand for steel, supply and demand. Price just went up because everyone wants steel. Concrete, same story. And then you always heard, well, they're building everything in China, so concrete prices are up because China's sucking up all the concrete. I'm not seeing anything or hearing any stories like that now. It's just steady. The line is increasing, but not at any spike or exponential rates. I love that kind of market. Ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. All right, let's do it. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Today's sponsor, Patch of Land, has got document for you that you've got to check out if you're a fix and flipper. They show you how a higher interest rate can actually deliver a lower cost to your fix and flip loan 
and conversely, how a lower interest rate could deliver a higher cost to your fix and flip loan. Needless to say, you got to know this stuff to identify the best loan terms. Go to patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Get this document, patchofland.com forward slash Joe Fairless. Ready to enter the minds of successful entrepreneurs and millionaires? Are you ready to excel in your entrepreneurial and investing journey? The new podcast, Before the Millions, studies phenomenal entrepreneurs and their path to millions. Journey through exclusive interviews, giving you all the secrets to mimic their successes. Listen and subscribe to Before the Millions podcast at BeforeTheMillions.com. That's BeforeTheMillions.com. All right, Bobby, best ever book you've read? Think and Grow Rich. Best ever deal you've done? Clarendon 1021, condo building in Arlington. And why is that the best ever deal? Not just for me, but the profit, or mostly for the equity partners, but the profit of $50 million in 18 months. What's a mistake you made on a transaction? Not doing full due diligence and continue to make that mistake. It's the fight against, frankly, being lazy. Can't do it. What's one area of the due diligence that you've honed in on that you need to put more focus on? Well, we have gotten better at that, but I would say the piece that we constantly need to ask about is document control. Are all the documents right? Do we have the originals? Is everything signed? Is it in the right spot? Did the title report say what we wanted it to? Are we properly insured? So, you know, document control. Best ever way you like to give back? The best ever way I like to give back is actually being involved in the giving back and not just writing checks. For example... We get involved in helping to renovate and build houses for those that wouldn't be able to do it for themselves, kind of a Christmas and April program. I really like that way of giving back. And how can the best ever listeners get in touch with you or learn more about your company? Our website is walnutstreetfinance.com, all spelled out. Our phone number that rings in our office on everyone's desk and gets picked up is 703 273-3500. And my cell phone, if you are interested in learning more about this space or our company, you can call me directly. That number is 202-409-4100. Well, thank you for talking about your experience in real estate developing and then also doing what you're doing now, lending why you got into lending, you saw the writing on the wall, the example of what you're looking for with the deals. I love how you simplified it. For me, it was helpful because I have a very simple mind that $10 you buy, $5 you fix, and you sell it for 20 And how you're seeing it bump up to 12 5 20 And the writing on the wall that you saw in 2006 and what you did and then some deals that you've done along the way. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. And we'll talk to you soon. Joe, thanks so much. I really appreciate your time. Ready to enter the minds of successful entrepreneurs and millionaires? Are you ready to excel in your entrepreneurial and investing journey? The new podcast, Before the Millions, studies phenomenal entrepreneurs and their path to millions. Journey through exclusive interviews, giving you all the secrets to mimic their successes. Listen and subscribe to Before the Millions podcast at BeforeTheMillions.com. That's BeforeTheMillions.com.